some incredible lyrics. Offend my mind to reveal my heart. I don't know if we can all the time actually pray that honestly because most of the time we want God to come in the way we desire him to come, to act in ways that are predictable for us. Probably one of the most vulnerable and powerful songs I think I've heard in a long, long time. So in just a few moments, there are going to be 16 different images that are going to appear on the screens behind me. And each of these is simply going to stay up for maybe two to three seconds. And the images either share a word or they represent a concept. And when each of the different images come up, I want you to look at it and do a very quick evaluation and ask the question, does that image describe me? As in, that's what I'm walking through right now. Or can I relate to that image? Maybe it's something that you've addressed in the past, or maybe you can see small parts of that that are a part of your personality at this point. So it's either describe or relate. So let's go ahead and start the images and just bring them up. About every two to three seconds, we'll switch them out. I get that look a lot on Sunday mornings, just to let you know. That's procrastination if you didn't catch it. (laughs) We're just going to leave that up on the screen for a moment there. So each of the images that you just saw, it represents attitudes or mindsets or character issues that most of us are hoping do not describe us. They're things that we want to avoid. So if you miss some of the different pictures and you're wondering what does that mean, here's the, the list of the ones I just walked through. There's procrastination, laziness, envy, impatience, lying, road rage, tardiness, a bad attitude, cheating, doubt, greed, pessimism, hate, alcoholism, addiction, regret. We could just keep going with that list of different pieces. There's so many more that could come in. So whether a person is Christian or they're non-Christian, we hope those things don't describe us. And if they do describe us, we hope they don't describe us for very long. But there's probably a really good chance that most of us could identify at least in some way or relate at least in some way to some of those different images that we were seeing on the screen. The question becomes... How do you change the parts of your life that you don't like to see on the screen? How do you change the pieces that have been so ingrained in your personality, that have settled so deep into your conscience, that have become so much a part of your identity that you can't think of what life would be like without those being a part of it? 
What do you do when you've prayed about something for years and you're still not free from it? What do you do when all of your discipline and all of your accountability partners and all of your New Year's resolutions have shown up short? How do you change the parts of your character, of your life that sometimes you're embarrassed to see or that you don't even think is possible to change? Or maybe another way of saying it would be, how do you change those different things on a core level, on a character level, and not just a behavior modification level? That's what we're getting into in this section that we deal with in Galatians tonight. So this is going to be the first of two messages. I will begin it this week. I will complete it this next week. I want you to be encouraged as we get started on this. And here's the reason I want you to be encouraged. God specializes in difficult situations. The greater the problem, the greater the glory. The issue is, are we willing to walk his path the way that he desires? Now, here's the added bonus. Not only can God free us from those things that we hate, but God can also enable us to do the things that we love. It's like a spiritual twofer that's going to be going on here. You get twice the blessing at the exact same cost. Now, don't get too excited about that because it's going to cost you everything. Notice I did not say at a low, low cost. To walk this out, it's going to cost us everything. It cost us our will, it cost us our way, it cost us our preferences, it cost us those things. The issue becomes, do we want God's best enough that we're willing to pay the price? Because he's made the way, he offers the opportunity, the enablement is there by his Holy Spirit. We're going to see that tonight. The question is, are we willing to pay the price to experience the life that we read about in Scripture? So, if you're tired of facing the same problems year after year, if you're tired of making promises you can't keep, if you're tired of hurting the people that you love, if you're tired of going through the same cycle of failure, guilt, and self-loathing, God's got a good word for you in Galatians tonight. I invite you to turn with me, Galatians chapter number 5, Galatians chapter number 5. And we are going to be in verses 16 all the way through the very end in verse 26. We're not going to be able to get into all of it, but I want to read the entire section tonight and we will pick back up in the same text again this next week. I'm speaking both weeks on walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. So here's what it says beginning in verse number 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, period. Did you see the period there? Did God stutter in this text? He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. Notice that things like that's like a catch-all. It's like he gets you started. He's like, you just keep going and going and going. Deeds of the flesh, there's a lot of them out there. Then he goes on to say, but I for, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight may you lay our hearts bare before you. God, help us not to deflect the teachings of Galatians 5 to someone else, but Lord, may we see where we are personally with you in this moment, according to this text. God, meet each of us in such a special, unique way that we recognize what it is that you're challenging and desiring to remove from our life and how it is that you want to live your victory through us. God, we need you for that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So the rest of Galatians is predicated upon us understanding this ongoing struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And a couple of weeks ago, I defined the flesh as the remnants of our former sin nature. And I want to explain that once again very quickly. At our physical birth, we are born with a sin nature. Our spiritual birth, when we are born again, John chapter 3, verse 3, we are given God's nature according to Colossians 3.10. Now, according to Scripture, the old sin nature died with Christ on the cross. That does not mean that as a Christian, we no longer sin. It does not mean that we no longer have bad thoughts. It does not mean that we no longer act in stupid ways. I wish that were the case, but that's not what that means. Christians will still do a number of those same things because of the habits and the traits and the tendencies that we developed while living under that sin nature. That's called the flesh. That is the remnants of our former life prior to Christ. Now, I'm going to give an example from my life to help you see what it is that I'm talking about here. And at the same time, I'm going to go back and bring this idea out a couple of more times as we work our way through this text. So, I've noticed in recent years, and maybe it's always been there, but it's something that I either did not want to notice or something that I have newly recognized in the last couple of years. But when I feel stressed or when I feel under pressure, one of my first tendencies is to find something to eat. I've told myself over the years, I just like food. I've told myself over the years, I'm extra snacky. For years with working out, I've told myself I need six to eight small meals a day instead of three big meals a day. Oh, there's a number of ways I could justify this 
need to go back and to get food over and over again. But I found out it was far more than me just being snacky. It was a coping method in my life. It was an ingrained habit of how I could escape the feelings of stress and find something else that seemed to make me happier in the moment. Now, mentally and spiritually, I know it's not healthy. I recognize that it shows what I go to instead of who I go to. Stress should lead me to God. Stress should cause me to reevaluate my priorities and maybe say no to a few more things and keep margin in my life and delegate more. Stress should do a number of different things, but it shouldn't lead me to the point of trying to eat my feelings every time I get stressed out. But here's the thing. It just seems easier and it's a lot tastier to go find something to eat. Okay. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments, and you're going to see how subtle the flesh is. Eating when stressed is a part of my flesh. It is a part of a habit that was developed long, long ago. Now, for other people, when they get stressed, there's other habits that they have moved into over the course of their life. And I'm just going to list some of these. Here's one of those things. People don't mind you talking about sins of the flesh. If you talk about them in general, we get uncomfortable when you start to call them by name. Be ready to get uncomfortable. Here we go. (laughs) So here's some other ones that people run to when stressed out. It leads them to manipulation, lying, blame shifting, shutting down emotionally, excessive drinking, overspending, In our culture, they call it retail therapy. Uh, By the way, that will come back to haunt you in multiple ways. There's also sexual sin, any number of other possibilities behind that. Each one is a fleshly response to stress. Now, that is the fleshly side of this equation. Let's move over for just a moment about the spirit side of this equation. When a person gets saved, and let's just talk about us, when we got saved, if you're a follower of Christ, we entered into this process of relearning how to operate in this life, in this world, with a new nature and with new power and with a new perspective. Our world got turned upside down in the best possible sense of the term. Uh, We start on this journey of how do we handle life differently now that the Spirit of God is indwelling us and we're not having to meet our own needs through our own devices. That is at the essence of what the flesh is all about. So Jesus told us over in John chapter 14, as he was leaving, he told his disciples, and it's also for us today, that he was going to send the helper, the Spirit of truth, who abides with you and will be in you. So when a person repents of their sin by placing faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, and here's just a sampling of what it is the Holy Spirit begins to do in and through a person's life, how it is that the Holy Spirit is our helper. These are in your notes. I'm not going to give all the references. Just look at them on your notes. That is, he leads us in the way of holiness. He guides us into all truth. He enables us to be fruitful. He provides access to God in prayer. He prays for us when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. He assures us we're children of God. 
He empowers us to be witnesses. He helps us in our weaknesses. He enables people to preach the gospel. He distributes spiritual gifts in the church. He renews us. He brings unity to the church. He sets us free from the law of sin and death. He reveals the deep things of God to us. He brings liberty. He transforms us into the image of Christ. He enables us to wait. He comforts us. He strengthens our spirits. He enables us to obey the truth. He dispenses God's love into our hearts. He gives us joy. I mean, take that list and ask the question, where would my life be today if the helper did not indwell me? Here's the short answer, in trouble. (laughs) We would all be in trouble if the Spirit of God did not indwell us. The rest of the book of Galatians is helping believers understand this ongoing struggle between the flesh that remains and the spirit who now indwells and wants to lead our lives. Now here's what Paul is setting up in Galatians. We can either continue to live by the habits, traits, and tendencies that we've developed under sin nature in the past. And if we do, We are set up for a life of disappointment and discouragement and fallen woefully short of what God intends. Or we can walk by the Spirit. Now, walking by the Spirit is not easy, but it's possible, it's available, it's a beautiful way. And once you're on that path, all of a sudden you see more and more ways in which God is leading you to walk by the Spirit. So, verse number 16, look back at it again. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That leads us into our big truth, number one. This is probably the most simple truth, but it's it's right there. Here it is. When you walk by the Spirit, you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. Isn't that profound? I mean, it's right there. Now, Just as Jesus is the primary person behind justification, the Holy Spirit is the primary person behind sanctification. Justification is the act of making a person right before God just as though they've never sinned. And sanctification is the act of transforming a person into the character of Christ so that it is not I who live but Christ who lives in me. Jesus saves, the Spirit sanctifies Now, if you're looking for some passages to validate the sanctification part of the Spirit, here's just some to write off to the side. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Uh, Whenever Peter wrote to believers in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he said that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit transforms us into the character of Christ. Now, we began with 16 images of bad attitudes, character issues, and ungodly mindsets. Sanctification is the process by which God works that out while at the same time 
working in what you find over in verses 22 and 23, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of this is made possible by the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean for a person to walk by the Spirit? Here's a very simple definition. We walk by the Spirit when we live under His direction and by His power. Under His direction and by His power. Now this word walk, it is in the present tense indicating that it is to be a continuous, regular action. Walking by the Spirit should be our habitual way of life. Do you know why it is that we seem to vacillate and waffle back and forth between days that we seem to be walking by the Spirit and days that people would be hard-pressed to even recognize us as a Christian? Do you know the reason why we go back and forth between the two extremes? Here it is. We walk by the Spirit when it's convenient. We walk by the Spirit when our Christian friends are around. We walk by the spirits when the context is conducive to that. Our walk is not habitual. It is a deviation from the norm. Walking by the spirit cannot be the exception to the norm. It has to be the default position of the believer. This word walk it is in the imperative mood. It indicates, listen, a command. He's not giving us the option of walk by the spirit if you get a chance He's commanding us, walk by the Spirit. Now you might say, but I don't like anybody telling me what to do. That's the flesh. That's rebellion. That's the highlight of that former life in Christ. We don't like anyone, even sometimes God, telling us what to do. So here's how you have to reframe it sometimes in your mind. You have to look at the payoff of what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. When you walk by the Spirit, you do not carry out the deeds of the flesh. When you walk by the Spirit, you are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and all of these things. Now, I want you to go back to my original illustration that I gave about one of the struggles in my life whenever I feel stressed out or overwhelmed. Now, I used a food illustration, and the reason I use that is because that's probably one of the most common ways that people deal with stress. So here's a number of options there. That is, we could either attempt to remove all stress from our lives. That's not going to happen. Or we could attempt to remove all food from our surroundings. That's just sad. <laughs> or we could attempt to discipline ourselves not to like food anymore, that's stupid. <laughs> or we could ask God to remove a desire to eat when stressed and replace it with a desire to come to him in prayer. Amen. That's what we need. But did you know there's a fifth option that a lot of times we're doing and we don't even know we're doing it? Here it is. We attempt to replace food with something else in order to think that we're walking victoriously. So let me give you what that looked like in my life. I tried to outsmart my flesh. And that is, I don't like to snack on celery. That's horrible. <laughs> it is. Let's be honest. We're in church. We can be honest. Celery's nasty. 
So for me, when I would get stressed out, I want junk food. Oreos, amen. Double stuff at least. I I want stuff that's not good for me. So do you know what I did to try to outsmart my flesh? We stopped bringing a lot of those foods into the house. Now that seemed to work because I'd walk and I'd stare at the cover. I was like, that looks horrible. And I'd turn around and I'd walk away. And it seemed victorious in the moment because I wasn't eating the same things. But here's what happened over the years. I recognized I started watching TV to escape my reality again. Do you see how quickly the flesh morphed? See, here's here's what's happening. If we're not careful in defining it right, because the flesh is trying to, in your attempts to meet your needs apart from God. So here's what we do. We say, that's a problem. I don't need to focus on food when I get stressed out, but it's not a problem for me to watch TV. I didn't replace food with God. I replaced food with another coping method. And then here's what you can do. You can talk yourself in and out of the game over and over again. You can begin to say things like, you know what, it's not really a coping method. It's just a way that I relax in the evening. It's what I do. But here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with watching a little bit of TV, nothing wrong with having some food, even a little bit of junk food along the way. That's not it. The issue is when the Spirit of God is prompting you in saying, you just replaced that for me, you just recognize a place in your own life where the Spirit of God is saying, that's the flesh coming back up. So here's what believers do. If we're not careful, we take no longer eating junk food as victory in Christ, and we just switch to another form of the flesh. It's like playing whack-a-mole with the flesh. You hit down one part, and another one pops up. Hit down this part, another one pops up. Here's how it has to be addressed. It has to be that the Spirit of the living God addresses that need at a core and character level so that in that moment, He is the greatest desire of your life. You can't do that. He has to be the one who does it for you. That's why this is such an incredible text of what it looks like to have this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Now look at what we says over in verse number 18. It says, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Uh, To be led by the spirit is essentially the same as walking by the spirit, but this time the emphasis is on his leadership. That is, you are not walking side by side with the Spirit as an equal, but rather you are following him. He is leading you as God. Paul says over in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are, please hear this, being led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. Now here's the reason I want you to pay close attention to those words who are being led. The Spirit is always leading. Now, here's where our prayers give away our theology. Sometimes we say, Spirit, would you lead me? Guess what? Spirit's already leading. Our prayer needs to be, God, give me the obedience to follow. The Spirit's leading. Now go down at what it says in verses 19 through 21. 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, all of these things all the way through. You could list these out, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. He even tells us that. But in this grouping, you can look at them in three different categories. Verse 19 deals with sexual sin. Verse 20, the first part, deals with man-made religion. And the second part of verse 20 and into verse 21 deals with human relationships. So for just a moment, I want to talk about each of those three categories. Under sexual sin, the first word that's mentioned there is immorality. It's from the word pornoneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. It is a word that represents sexual sin in general. That is, it refers to all illicit sexual activity outside of a man and a woman in a covenant relationship of marriage. Now, I want us to pause here for just a moment because I need to get on to Christians, and since I'm a Christian, I can get on to myself at this point. When talking about sexual sin, and by the way, I, I'm only, I, I recognize there's young people in the room. I'm only going so far. Parents, be okay. But when talking about sexual sin, the church is really good at pointing out the sins of the world, and we usually start with homosexuality at the top. We lose credibility when we start there, and we don't also address other sexual sins that are found in Scripture. So this includes all of those. And just so that you get just a quick smattering of that, this also includes adultery, which is married people having sex with someone who is not their spouse. Fornication, when single people have sex with someone outside of marriage. Homosexuality, sex between people of the same gender. You could put in incest and prostitution, any number of things. But that one word, immorality, it covers the gamut of all of those sexual sins. Then there's impurity, that is filthiness of heart and mind that makes a person defiled. The impure person thinks from a perverted mind and they see filthiness everywhere. In fact, Titus 1.15, it says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Then sensuality, it refers to sexual indulgence without shame or concern for others. You can see it in the church. You can see it in the world where there is a sexual indulgence without the least concern for God, for family, for morality, any of those things. Then he speaks of man-made religion in the next part. And, and let's pause for, again, we, we got to pause and go back to what is he talking about? Deeds of the flesh. What are all of these things? These are human attempts to meet our own needs apart from God. That's, that's what this list is all about. So then he goes on into man-made religion. Uh, just know, humanity is going to worship something. All religion is based on a self-effort or misguided worship or a sinful insistence of making oneself acceptable before God. So he mentions specifically idolatry here. That is outright worship of someone or something other than God, or for that matter, putting things ahead of God in our life. We, God's rightful place has now been taken by something else. We are worshiping something other than him. Then there's sorcery. 
It comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, where we get a, the word pharmacy. It's also where a word witchcraft comes from. In many of the ancient religious and cultic ceremonies, people would often use drugs to open themselves up to spirits and other deities. This is a term that was later associated specifically with witchcraft and black magic. Here's the thing again. It's someone attempting to meet their own needs through their own devices. Now he comes into human relationships. There's a group of issues that are addressed here. He speaks of enmities, that is, hateful attitudes. It is the absolute opposite of being loving to other people. Then there's jealousy. It's a form of anger and hateful resentment caused by coveting something that belongs to someone else. Then there's outbursts of anger. These are sudden, unrestrained expressions of hostility towards others with little to no provocation. Then there's disputes and dissensions and factions and envy. These are ongoing relational issues. Now, they represent the animosities between individuals and groups, and they continue to be ways that even believers will operate if they're still operating according to the flesh. Now, he also talks about drunkenness and carousing. So I'm about to give you the official definition and share with you why I think it's a hair bit humorous, but not humorous in a way of go out and do this, but humorous in the way it made sense in my mind. So here's the official definition. Drunkenness and carousing refer to intoxicating, crude behavior that exists when there's unrestrained revelry and enjoyment has degenerated. Did you all get all of that? Okay, if that one went right past you, let me break it down in a way that it made sense in my mind. It's what happens when the party gets out of control. That's what it's describing. Intoxication leads to stupid behavior. Stupid behavior is often crude and unrestrained. And then intoxication and stupid behavior often leads right back into sexual sin that starts the entire cycle over again. Now, just after finishing this rather unpleasant list, Paul tells us in verse number 21, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This passage has caused a lot of people to doubt their salvation. They look at that and they say, but that describes me. I can see parts of myself here. Does that mean I'm not truly saved? Key word to look at here is the word practice. That is a present active participle speaking of durative, ongoing action. It refers to continual, habitual, ongoing practices of these sins. It describes the person's ongoing way of life. It shows a lack of repentance, and that's key, and therefore a reason for the person to repent, get saved, to enter the kingdom of God. So now we go on from there. Paul makes a very similar statement, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, or swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say the change. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Here it is. But you were sanctified. 
That's what he's talking about. That's the Spirit's work that is happening in us. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. When genuine salvation takes place, we are justified and we are sanctified. Now, that doesn't mean that believers will not find themselves at times falling back into these exact sins. But if you can live in that sin and it not disturb your conscience, that should disturb you. Something is, is not right at that point. So the first major benefit of walking by the Spirit is we do not carry out the desires of the flesh. So here's your homework. I want you to look over the list that is in the text. Maybe go back and look at the video again and watch some of the different original images that were put up there and ask yourself the question, can I relate to that or does that describe me? Is that a part of my life? If there's things that God brings to mind, I cannot encourage you enough to confess those things before God to repent of those things. That, that means say, God, I do not want this as a part of my life. By your grace, I turn from that and I turn towards you. May I walk in greater faith with you. And when a person does that, they don't go back through and pick up that same thing again and walk. They say, God, I am trusting that you alone can do it. You had to trust Jesus to save you. You're going to have to trust the Spirit to sanctify you. It is a walk of faith on both sides of the equation. As we continue to walk by faith, as we recognize what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, what the text tells us is a promise. We will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Is that going to happen overnight? Probably not unless God does a miracle in your life. But here's the thing. God desires to live that type of victory through every single one of his followers. It's there. It's available. It's the life that we desire. But it's going to come with us saying, God, I can't, but you can through me. God, I recognize I've tried to replace you again for this item over here. God, I repent of that. Keep my eyes locked directly on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we continue to walk through a text that has so many practical implications into our life, God, may we not be afraid of those vulnerable moments with you, those hard moments where you are pointing out, you are clarifying, you're sharing areas in our character that are not in alignment with you. God, may we not run from those moments but recognize them as a sweet part of the discipline process where you remove the things that are of the flesh and you instill the things that are of your spirit. God, we ask that you would do it as only you can. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your week.